Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. I'm in uh, Connecticut. My name is Shoka Turawa. I'm one of the executive editors of the Library of Arabic Literature. And um, on behalf of Philip Kennedy, who is the general editor, and on behalf of the library and the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's annual Library of Arabic Literature lecture. This is something that we usually hold in person, live in Abu Dhabi, at the same time as our annual board meeting. Uh, and uh, this is something that we've been doing now for, I guess, 10 or yeah, this would be the 11th, 11th year. Typically, we ask one of our editors, that is a member of our editorial board, to speak about a project uh, they're working on for the library. Uh, the Library of Arabic Literature is a series that produces authoritative editions of Arabic texts that are significant to the heritage. Here's one uh, in dual facing translations, Arabic on one side. English on the other. We then uh, extract the English and produce um, English paperbacks. This uh, first text I showed you just came out is the Book of Charlatans by Al Jawbari. The second book in paperback that I just held up is the uh, uh, poetry of Abdullah ibn Subayil. Um, and we have certain other uh, products, as it were. We, uh, the Arabic is freely available from the website, downloadable. We also sometimes produce. Uh, scholarly editions, but the bulk of the work is to produce these, these facing English Arabic translations for um, posterity. The editors uh, over the past few years who've spoken or the individuals who've given the annual lecture in 2018, it was Bilal Orf Ali from the American University of Beirut, who gave a talk called Walking in the Steps of Poets, Courtly Themes in Early Sufism. Last year, Huda Fakhreddin of the University of Pennsylvania spoke on Arabic poetry in the 21st century, translation and multilingualism. Uh, these are now members of our editorial board. And one of the things we asked them to do is speak about their own work. That is to say, we expanded the purview of the annual lectures to include material that the editors were working on themselves, whether or not they were those, uh, that work was related to the Library of Arabic Literature. This year, we have the good fortune and pleasure of listening to Inas Khansa, also of the American University of Beirut, and also newly on our board. We reconstituted the board uh, this year uh, for the 11th through 15th year of the project. This project is funded by Tamkin through the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We are eternally grateful for the support that we receive, both financially, but also institutionally. Uh, and at the end of the talk, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge folks um, more specifically. Um, so Inas is a new board member and has decided to speak uh, on the Arabian Nights. We hope um, that you enjoy the talk. I will just tell you a little bit about her before I, I ask her to begin. Uh, she has a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies from Georgetown University. Uh, she worked on um, the Iqd al-Farid by uh, Ibn al-Rabbi. She has held a Mellon Fellowship with UNESCO's Santiago de Compostela Conservation Project through Harvard University. And she was a fellow at the Aga Khan Program for the History of Islamic Art 
and architecture at Harvard. As I said, she's now based at the American University of Beirut. I should just mention that a number of our, of our new editors are based uh, at uh, universities in the uh, Arabic-speaking world, uh, and a number of them are based in the U.S. So Inas and the above, the aforementioned Bilal Orf Ali and Huda Fakhreddin are joined by Lara Harb from Princeton University, Maya Kesrawani and Maurice Pomerantz, both of NYU Abu Dhabi, Mohammed Rustam of Carlton University, and Sean Anthony of Ohio State uh, as the new board. Uh, and um, as I said, uh, we've asked we ask them and we will continue to ask them to present their work to the larger public, to the, to the public. Uh, I ask you now to, Inasa, I ask you now to present. Um, it's a webinar. It's a bit weird. Uh, I gather I'll be blanked out. Everyone will be able to hear you and the audience will be able to ask uh, questions by posting to the chat. Uh, and Nahid and I will probably be sending you messages in the chat. That is the audience uh, to help guide you. Uh, to use a true and tried expression without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Inas Khansa of the Library of Arabic Literature. Thank you, Dr. Surawa, thank you, Dr. Kennedy and Lal. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. In this talk, uh, I make audible a conversation in the Thousand and Nights of Layla from here onwards on the meaning and application of justice. More specifically, I analyzed three sequences of stories. The two kings, the one inside stories, the merchant and the genie, the three inside stories, and the fisherman and the athlete, the seven, five, or one inside story, depending on the manuscripts. All three understood to belong to the earliest bundle. And without assuming that Athlela constitutes an organized whole or that one story can represent the work, I uncovered how the stories speak to one another primarily through adapting synonymous punitive premises to changing context and through exploring the meaning of justice. So I make three arguments based on this analysis. First, that Alfleila adopts an attitude that advocates for multiplicity over singular interpretation in a fashion that confirms the contingency of ethical questions. Second, that Alfleila equates poor rulership with the failure of interpretation and locates the solution to both in a communal framework. And lastly, that Alfleila, in theme, presentation, and designation, subscribes to Arab Islamic styles of knowledge production. Let's see. Sorry. Start with this at the end. Okay. I choose to start with this piece by Yasmin Seal, scholar translator now of the Arabian Nights, to recognize from the onset that the politics of our position as readers of medieval literature. It's one of privilege and power. We do not bring medieval works to life when we read them. We are creating them anew with every interpretation. So today, my reading is one of many, and I hope you find it interesting. Alfleila comes to us from different surviving fragments. The slide here is the famous Chicago fragment that Nabia Abbott uncovered in her article, where it brought us a confirmation that Alfleila was not just a title in Ibn Nadim's Ferris, but an actual work. Abbott's colleague at uh, Chicago, who later moved to Harvard, Mohsen Mahdi, 
spent 25 years meticulously reconstructing Al-Flayla from the earliest sources available to us, the Syrian family of manuscripts and the slightly later Egyptian family of manuscripts. Uh, the research into the history of the manuscripts has not stopped, but his work uh, that was published in three volumes in 1984 to 1994 remains authoritative. And it's what I consult in this study. I supplemented when needed from other sources. So today I will be speaking about the stories in details, how they provoke a conversation on justice, and we'll be then speaking about the affinity with advice literature, and lastly, how I see Al-Flayla as a work of Adam. The nonlinear genetic histories of Al-Flayla complicate any discussion of the threads that connect the frame to the body of stories that are independent yet entangled with one another. Scholarly discussions tend to assume a divide and often privilege the opening story as a stem from which the rest of the world branches. And I believe this divide, this assumed divide, contributed to overlooking important aspects of the The overwhelming focus in the scholarship examines structure, like storytelling, themes, like storytelling as ransom for life, and motives adultery with slaves, magic, and the appearance of jinn, desire, as the elements that suture the stories together, which again inhibited attention to how the stories speak to one another, which is what I hope to be doing today. I would like to argue that what connects the stories with one another should be understood as an opportunity for examining the work's engagement when uh, with its Arabo-Islamic context. To that end, I will show today that the two kings, which is known as the frame tale, and the two following sequences of stories seem to have been rewoven into an extended debate over the meaning and implication of justice. A striking feature the study of Al-Flayla should recognize lies in how its modern and Western inception, both as a text as an intrigue, curtailed the attention to Arabo-Islamic character encouraging layers of narrative in different contexts that made strange and in need of proving any reverberations of medieval Arab-Islamic questions, values, and attitudes. And here lies the contribution of this study. In what has been read as fate, arbitrary logic, enchantment, magic, and dreamlike narratives, I suggest we can equally speak of a concern for justice, not only as a theme, but as a heuristic designation as well. The popularity of Al-Flayla and afterlives it enjoyed up to our present times in the Arab world and the West in cross-cultural incarnations and translations need not eclipse or substitute the Arab-Islamic character the work came to adopt and the questions it set out to address. What then connects these stories in Al-Flayla? Here I want to revisit the analysis and the scholarship. Frame tales are not unique to Al-Flayla, Arabo-Islamic culture, or medieval times. They have been studied in a variety of contexts where scholars ask how the frame informs the embedded sequences, and the opposite, how the embedded stories shed light on the frame tale. Frame tales uh, have been considered parasitical in need of embedded tales to survive. They have been understood through oral written uh, transmission and through their ability to carry tales over time. 
Uh, they more recently, in the works of David Wax, have been examined as sites for cultural and intercultural encounters. Of Alf Leila in particular, the frame narrative has been studied through uh, multiple frameworks. And here I list a few. Uh, Ferial Gazul understands the frame tale as a necklace and uh, considers the embedded stories as beats. The first, she argues, can stand on its own, the latter cannot. Mohsen um, Musawi suggests we think of the joining and traveling of the frame tale into a metropolitan culture of great urban power. Mohsen Mahdi, who edited uh, the authoritative text of Al-Flayla, suggests that tales cannot be understood to be put randomly. He speaks of design and the writing, compiling, and copying of these tales. Of course, he has a critique of certain practices in these processes. Abu Bakr Suraibi considers the order, especially of the first sequence, to be a scholarly intervention. And lastly, Carla Mallet, in a recent piece, speaks of how the frame tale gives us a hermeneutic map of the work. To these, particularly in the spirit of the last three, I would like to add a reading inspired by the analysis of these stories. I suggest we read the framing embedding dynamic differently by suspending the assumption of divide between frame and body of stories and by focusing on the epistemic conversation that connects the two. The crisis in the frame here raises a question about kingly power. The following two sequences respond in two connected yet distinct threads. So uh, what I'm proposing instead of interdependence or the hierarchical view that most theories uphold is to think of a correspondence. We can look at these stories as equal components of one debate. Al-Flayla, I, Al I believe, subscribes to Arabo-Islamic medieval writing, in uh, which is marked by diegetic fluidity. By which I mean the style of presenting akhbar uh, uh, and pieces of information in medieval Arab books. In, debate, in debating a particular point, medieval authors go hear reports, poetry lines, quotations, and examples, often from distinct genres, from a wide var uh, variety of sources Greek, Sasanian, Indian, and Jahili, a feature that has been characterized as a humanist worldview. How these different quotes are presented is what I'm particularly interested in here. The fact that the pieces can be placed next to each other and assume a conversation or some form of continuity is quite unique to medieval writing, and it exhibits flexibility in moving from one world, or one narrative, one diegetic world, to another. To go back then, epistemic continuity across layering is the most unique feature of Arabic writing we see in Al-Flayla. And it's one that gestures to greater engagement with readership. Al-Flayla opens with the story of the two kings, King Shahrayar and Shah Zaman, referred to as the frame. We first uh, are introduced to King Shahrayar as a successful ruler with a stable kingdom. His people were loyal to him. Uh, he went hunting, which is another marker of stability. You don't go hunting when the country is at crisis. But also we are shown an extended period of time, 10 years during which King Shahrayar and King Shah Zaman, uh, his brother, ruled peacefully. 
Quickly, however, the fairy tale introduces a breach of absolute power when an affair the queen and the mates of the palace have, without the permission or knowledge of the king, is discovered and witnessed. In response, the king embarks on a journey to disavow kingly power, but fails on this trip and returns to address the initial challenge by reasserting his authority. He starts marrying a woman every night and orders them to be killed by dawn, the execution being carried out literally by his vizier. A crisis ensues. From the Palatine side, chaos spreads kingdom-wide. The first three executed brides, the daughter of the vizier, an army general, and a merchant, uh, are then followed by daughters of the mercantile circle and the commoners. When Aulad al-Tujar, dissatisfaction plagues the kingdom as a whole, gesturing to the interdependence of sound kingly administration and the stability of the state, and thus priming the reader and the listener from the onset to expect the solution to be found within a communal framework that speaks to both. The king's practice brings about the interference of the vizier's daughter, Shahrazad, who marries the king and delays her own execution by narrating stories until an heir is produced, marking a resolution to the crisis and a conclusion to the next. Inas, may I just interrupt one second? Uh, the Q&A, people are saying that um, it's not loud enough and it's not clear. I think you may need to move closer to your mic. And also, I think when you raise your papers, I think it, it is blocking voice from the mic. So you may need to re, I think the easiest thing is simply just to raise your voice. Okay. Be a bit louder. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. I sent you a message, but uh, there's been a number of people commenting on their, uh, that they're having difficulty hearing uh, one of the liabilities of the, of the web, of course. Thank and you. And I apologize to the audience for interrupting as well, but this was on your behalf. All right, go ahead. Uh, uh, okay. Interrupt me again if it doesn't get better, but I will try to raise my voice. Okay. Great. There should be an agreement that King Shahrayar's decision constitutes a form of injustice. The theme of women's deceit, however, has been identified as the primary designation of the crisis. And as such, the interpretation of the work tended to prioritize punishment and power as the guiding project of Leila. While the question of women's deceit weaves into the chain of events that lead to the king's decision, and reappear in later tales, prioritizing it as the main line of inquiry. This embeds the story from a more organically develop, developed concern pertaining to good rulership and the question of justice. The adultery scene itself should be understood as, as a breach of royal authority. The crisis then is not about adultery, but about authority. And the injustice the opening tale presents pertains to the abuse of kingly power which Alf Leila openly equates with a failure of interpretation. In witnessing seemingly synonymous instances of women's deceit, the character of King Shahrayar mistakes repetition for evidence. And the conclusion that women cannot be faithful or trusted is reached independent of advisors, precedent, and, and context. Following this act of flawed reasoning, the king collapses three positions by simultaneously assuming the role of a witness, a victim, and a judge. Is it better? I hope everyone can hear me better. 
it is better. Thank you. Not being a party in a dispute while adjudicating is an intuitive rule. A cultural cue from a poetry shows how the collapse of the two positions into one, uh, meaning being a party and a judge in the same dispute, has been identified as a marker of injustice, and that King's exemption of this violation was widely recognized and generally accepted. In attempting to remedy an impossible political situation, the famed Arab poet, Mutanabbi, laments the disruption of his friendship with his patron, Hamdani Anir Saifad-Dawla, who later expelled him from his majlis. To highlight the injustice of the fallout, Al-Mutanabbi writes, Ya a'dal al-nasi illa fi mu'amalati, fik al-khisamu wa anta al-khasmu al-haqam. O you, most just of all people, except in how you treat me, the dispute is with you, and you are both the opponent and the decider. The line echoes an expression to the same effect from a poem by an earlier poet, in which he writes, وَلَسْتُ أَرْجُمْ تِسَافًا مِنْكَ مَا ذَرَفَتْ عَيْنِي دُمُوعًا وَأَنْتَ الْخَصْمُ وَالْحَكَمُ and I do not expect justice on your hands as long as my eye sheds tears and as long as you are both the opponent, al-khasm, and the decider, al-hakam. As for, uh, for being a witness while adjudicating, classical Islamic sources confirm the intuitive ethos on this front as well. In the story of Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was approached by two people to rule on a dispute and was asked by uh, one of them to be a witness. He refuses and says, I either do one or the other. In both legal and popular understanding, the conflation of positions marks an interruption of justice. And this would have been quite clear to the readers of Al-Shlayla. The problematic Al-Flayla is provoking in the frame tale then produces an opportunity to revisit the king's exemption from these rules. In other words, Al-Flayla is questioning whether the ruler can be about the law and seems to be asking, shouldn't the king subscribe to recognize norms and perform accordingly to secure a just conclusion and thus stability and communal good? And it is this claim I believe the following two sequences of stories address. On the first night of Al-Flayla, with a request from her sister, Shahrazad starts narrating the story of the merchant and the jinn, which opens uh, with a scene uh, of a crime. The merchant uh, unknowingly kills the son of a jinni by throwing the fit of a date in the forest and is now threatened to be killed by the jinn. The merchant asks, uh, why would he kill me? And the jinni explains. The merchant protests and asks for pardon, pardon but the jinni insists, I must kill you for killing my son. The merchant requests and is granted a grace period to settle his accounts and inform his family. A year later, he returns to the rendezvous point and waits. When a sheikh passes by accompanied by a gazelle and, and chains, then another accompanied by two black dogs and a third with a shimmel. Hearing the story of the merchant, all three of them feel the obligation to stay and help. 
So they wait for the genie with whom they strike a deal. Each would volunteer to redeem one third of the merchant's life by telling appealing stories, ajiba, on the condition that they please the genie. The stories please the genie, and the merchant is pardoned and returned, uh, reunited with his family. Abu Bakr Shiraibi points to how the frame tale in the sequence harkens back to the tale of Khurafa, a Bedouin who is taken by jinnis in the desert. While the captors are uncertain on whether to kill, enslave, or free Khurafa, three people appear and tell an extraordinary story in exchange for his release. The story of Khurafa is quite famous because there is a claim that after surviving, he narrated his experience to the Prophet. And jury uh, suggests that this was a way to legitimize the genre of Khurafa. In Khurafa, kidnapping has no reason or justification. The moment preceding it is silent. The story as it appears in Al-Flayla instead is about transgression, about accountability and clemency. It's also about how stories create an obligation to interfere on behalf of justice. Lastly, it ties the sequence inversely to the frame tale through the conspicuous absence of witness uh, against which the crisis of Shahriyars. Uh, the main feature I'd like to highlight here about this sequence of stories is the progressive trajectory of the punitive decisions. The story starts with the frame tale where the jinni loses his son and threatens to kill the merchant. So here punishment is commensurate with the transgression. The story of the first sheikh, we see reduced punishment or a fragment, uh, a taste of the transgression. While the second sheikh, we see conditioned pardon. The third and last story um, parodies King Shahriyar's story more directly in having a husband witness an adultery and proposes in response to adultery and two murders forgiveness. The jinni settles the case in concert with the three sheikhs and sets the merchant free. In none, must be noted, punishment results in death. Against the story of Shahriyar, this sequence engages directly with the crisis of the frontier. It introduces a series of conversations Majlis-like trials that transform notions of revenge from punish punishment to pardon. The stories more urgently tie in an inverse correlation the finality of punishment to the act of reading or listening. Uh, by that I mean that interpretation primes the characters, including the jinni, to find confirmation of justice and responses to transgression in the process rather than in the punitive outcomes. The sequence locates fairness in a dialogical collectiveness, asserting that narration is yoked to concern justice. The stories narrated by the sheikhs are not only appealing, they are actually autobiographical and they share a theme. They do not simply play, please the genie, we would assume. They set up a collage of, exp uh, of uh, experiments in each an individual interpretation produces new iteration that is both specific to its own context, yet communicative of broader shared norms. Uh, 
through this, Alfleila seems to be suggesting to us that interpretation is not only a contribution to the ongoing aspiration for justice, but as a, but as a collective process in itself can become a side for clemency. Put differently, clemency unfolds in the dialogical act of interpretation. A second sequence of stories introduced on the eighth night, the story of the fisherman and that fleet, expands the debate into a new angle and starts with the discussion of Ahsan, benevolence. So it resumes where the first sequence ends. The chain introduces the story of King Yunnan and Sage Juban, uh, in which the sage who cures the ailing king is killed by the king. But the story doesn't end there. In a humorous nudge to the faint tale, the sage asks the king to read a book with such a mysterious title, Khas al-Khawas, after killing him, which the king does only to realize that the book had blank pages and a deadly poison. The king dies after trying to read the book. The sequence takes uh, the debate further and rejects transgression in favor of pardon and reward. In the frame story, the fisherman, after freeing Dafrit from millennial captivity, finds himself facing death. So this is the famous story of the genie in a bottle at the bottom of the ocean. And the fisherman, uh, upon freeing him, instead of expecting reward, is threatened to be killed. How can you repay kindness for punishment? He asks. Rather than evaluating transgression, retribution itself is poised to be examined here as a marker of betrayal and injustice or the behavior of the wicked, al-fawajir, as the fisherman puts it. A number of insect tales are told before the story concludes with an act of pardon, which in turn is reciprocated by the word. During his captivity, the Afrit, uh, which we mentioned, he was uh, one of the rebel uh, athletes that uh, revolted against King Solomon. The rebel athlete in the frame story experiments with scenarios in which he makes pledges to whomever uh, would set him free. During the first 200 years, the athlete pledges to make the person who sets them free uh, rich until the end of time. In the following 200 years, he promises to reward them with the riches of the world. The following 400 and 100 years, he's still waiting. Dafid pledges to make them a sultan and to be their servant, making three wishes come true uh, every day. After all these centuries, when no one came to the rescue, Dafid pledges to kill whoever frees them savagely. Or alternatively, to let them choose how to die. Armed with boundless might, the athlete, now restrained by captivity, embarks on a hypothetical exercise of power, within which, through fickle and temporarily conditioned pledges, fatal retribution is placed within the epistemic ambit of ultimate reward, thus constituting power in a way that chooses pardon in lieu of punishment becomes possible. And the stories within the sequence of the fisherman and the afrit realize this strange 
thus presenting a miniature of the overall plot of Al-Flayla and the king's transformation from punishment to pardon and reward. The frame story and the first two sequences constitute one cohesive debate. In questioning punitive notions, the two sequences seem to be directly responding to the initial collapse of positions that King Shahrayar exemplified in a display of absolute and unrestrained power. Shahrazad probably did not stop here, but she could have, since a complete tale has been told in these two stories. The first sequence enacts a series of short trials that transform Shahrayar's revenge into a spectrum of options, ranging from retaliation to pardon. The second sequence resumes where the first ends with a story about Ahsan. It takes the debate further and investigates retribution itself. The two combined present a progressive trajectory. While the first sequence accepts retribution as a response to transgression, yet favors pardon, the second shows that without attention to context and proper process, retribution itself can become a form of transgression with deadly outcomes. In adopting multiple scenarios for synonymous premises, the two combined, like the rebel athlete, expand the interpretive potentials of retribution against changing contexts. The punitive decision reached by King Shahrayar re-emerges and sees uh, the stories curated to parody his dilemma. The decision taken by the king alone extends in these two chains into a sequence of sessions involving several characters whose configuration to one another produces multiple iterations of justice. Al-Flayla, most significantly in these sequences, suggests that storytelling is geared towards seeking clemency and communal good. I would like now uh, to have a short discussion of the overlap between Al-Flayla and advice literature. I would be happy to expand in the Q&A. It has been suggested that Al-Flayla can be an extended, loose, work of advice literature, and I want to address uh, this point. Quoted from three different advice works, these suggestions in this slide correspond to themes we can locate in the stories examined here from Al-Flayla Leila. The overlap, thematic and literal borrowing between Al-Flayla and works of advice literature is undeniable. It has been actually proven by scholars. Yet a distinction must be made between advice, advisors, and advice literature in the study of the program of Al-Flayla. And of the three, I suggest a greater role should be given to advisors, as I see Al-Flayla belonging to a broader adapt framework that goes beyond what we encounter in advice literature. Embedded within theological, philosophical, and literary frameworks, Advice is quite ubiquitous. It might be nearly impossible to find a work of literature that doesn't entail at least a feature of advice. Advice literature, however, is specific, it's a specific genre. It addresses questions of communal good, order, and concerns itself with the management of government. Works of advice literature are often written in very particular contexts and addressed to a specific pattern. 
Despite their wide readership and inclusive cultural geographies, works of advice literature come with very serious and specific missions. We can think, for example, of Al-Mawardi's Al-Ahkam al-Sultaniyim, where he presses the need to defend the caliphate as a Sunni institution. Or Saqalli Sulwan al-Muta'a, consolation for the ruler during the, host the hostility of the subject, which has empirical advice to the ruler facing unrest among the subjects. Or what we see in Tuhfat al-Turk by Turtusi, wherein he attempts to persuade the Mamluk ruler to give exclusive priority to the Hanafi school of law over other uh, Sunni schools that got somewhat equal official uh, representation at the time. If we claim a congruity between advice literature as a genre and al-Flayla, it's because we can quickly detect features distinctly shared between the two. But do these shared elements suffice to make al-Flayla a work of advice literature, as has been suggested? I would caution against such views since it has limitations. It's important to point to these affinities between the two, but it's equally urgent to ask why and how a work of semi-popular literature is a participant in and a witness to societal conversation on justice and good rulership. It helps us include Arab in deconstructing how the Islamic communities understood the term of justice. By showing how the king loses sight of justice, I go back here to Al-Flayla, we are to understand that justice cannot be realized within the person of the king alone. In doing so, Al-Flayla makes a strong case for an external management or co-management of rulership. In the crisis and its solutions, we are directed to see that singular interpretation is an act of coercion and a violent form as we see it in the repeated literal beheadings of innocent women in the frontier. In other words, Al-Flayla shows us that justice is a communal enterprise, it's dialogical and it's artificial. And in all three respects, it intertwines emphatically with the act of interpretation that comes to life in its dynamic engagement with precedent, consultation, and context. Advice literature shares a wall with law Cohesion and the status quo, with few exceptions, guide these works. Al-Flayla, loosely communicative of formal legal steps, allows for clemency where law would have asked for a different outcome. In other words, the justice that we see in Al-Flayla is distinct from the few we attend to in advice works. The solution in the stories examined here is another point of departure from advice works where stabilizing strategies of interpretation within, within a clear order that protects the centrality of the political rule takes priority. Al-Flayla instead leans heavier on the reader audience and the process of generating clemency um, emerges as a collective adaptable and therefore promissory. And perhaps in that, and this last feature, despite taking on new meaning in its uh, many incarnations, Al-Flayla lays claim to its undying appeal. In these points, I read a call for advisors, for a majlis, and for the ruler to be aware of the cultural context in the broader sense of the word. 
In Alf Leila, the king's attempt to bring meaning to a closure, to a finality that is sealed and confirmed by blood, dismantles itself against multiplicity, which protects reading as a discursive practice and suggests to us that rulership is a performance that comes to life through consultation. This is why I would suggest we read Alf Leila at the work of Adam. It belongs to Islamic culture in that the act of reading has been construed within hermeneutics that, largely that are largely informed and conditioned by, and even contingent on, the ethical implication sharing knowledge and tales. Just as the jinni who forgives, once informed of other experiences narrated to him by the three sheikhs, and the afrit, who becomes capable of choosing ihsan in lieu of random punishment, the king is reformed, and the stability of the kingdom is restored through the knowledge that Shahrazad shared throughout the nights. Sharing knowledge as narration and advice as storytelling is geared towards a concern for the greater good, Al-Flayla seems to be suggesting, and it's a claim that lies at the heart of, of Adam. To conclude, the popularity of Al-Flayla is quite astounding. Here I wanted to share in this slide a very exciting uh, survey of the number of books and uh, PhD and master's uh, projects that uh, decided like to choose Al-Flayla as a theme. And it's uh, ongoing and it keeps growing. It's quite exciting. Um, we should be thrilled to see um, uh, a game named after Aflayla, or a new ballet adaptation on magic and seduction. But to look at hundreds of Arab works from medieval culture suggests to us something different. If we look at the Kutaiba, uh, writing in the ninth century in Baghdad, who speaks of sharing knowledge as a societal obligation, he tells us, Zakatul Ilmi or Ibn Abdrabbihi, who speaks also of location to share knowledge. Or Ibn Bassam, who speaks of grace and virtue entailed in writing his anthology, as Zakhira. And lastly, as Safadi, who speaks of inclusivity. His work is open to everyone, and this beautiful expression. He said, I invited to this book, Al-Rafala, uh, meaning without any discrimination, everyone is welcome to read this, uh, this work. These works tell us that Arabo-Islamic medieval societies understood the profound obligation to advancing human connection through sharing knowledge. And it's here that I believe we can locate Al-Flayla's uh, claim, namely that interpretation presses us to a greater concern for justice. Thank you. I'll stop sharing and I'll go and set the questions and start answering. Uh, please add as many questions as you like. Inas, are you gonna field the questions or shall I? Uh, I'm gonna look at them. The first one from Amira, she's asking, uh, she's saying that the, at school the, uh, they were taught that most stories are Persian and that the Arabs are the ones who are able to keep it. Uh, I go back to my first slide with uh, Yasmin's work. Um, actually, Al-Flayla is 
uh, not unique, but a, a great work to look at these cultural journeys from uh, Persian and Indian sources to Arabic medieval sources to uh, European and, and the rest of the world. So it's a traveling text. And yes, it, uh, it's understood to have an Eastern uh, origin. But as I show in the slide of the fragment, uh, actually, the frame tail that I talk about in this uh, presentation that Mohsen Mahdi reconstructed from the earliest manuscripts is not in that fragment. So we know in the ninth century we had a different version of the ninth. So it's kept changing and it's still changing actually until today. Um, another question from Mustafa is the meaning and definition of justice in the story is clear? Uh, is it something to take for granted? Um, I hope to have shown that it's uh, a primary concern in these three sets of stories. Um, but it's a definition. This is a work of uh, literature. So it's not given us a definition as we would expect in other forms of knowledge. It's kind of reworking the meaning of clemency um, and of interpretation. And in the story of the king, of course, being reformed, uh, it's, it's dealing with, with justice and uh, rulership. <laughs> this question about President Trump. I would the question that uh, if if the ruler can be above the law, yes, we can read what's happening today. Here and say that uh, as a moderator that the question is not appropriate for this forum. Okay. And although uh, I'm sure that maybe maybe this person can contact you privately and and ask you. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, any you know questions beyond this session, you're welcome to send. Uh, to send me like a message uh, or an email. Um, what do you think of those who read the 1001 Nights as a good uh, resource or representation of the Islamic and the Arab world? Um, from Ghazal or Ghazal, um, I think it's one work of many and uh, it's uh, very complex and very rich. Um, work and it continues as I pointed out to be to generate interest and discussion and it's a good thing but I believe uh, we should not take one work from any culture to be a representative of, of the culture um, it's a work of literature and uh, there are many other medieval texts that uh, speak of different aspects of uh, Islamic uh, culture so um, um, okay. Um, it says here, is it fair to say that the emphasis on advice in the, in the Arabian Nights is a clear trait of Arabian tribal traditions? Um, I'm not quite sure what that is in reference to, uh, but I think uh, the idea, are you referring to Shura maybe? Uh, it could be, 
uh, in the sense that it's not going back to one specific uh, tradition, but as I pointed out, advice and the recommendation for consultation uh, runs through many forms of knowledge in, in Arabic uh, medieval culture, specifically when it comes to law and to political uh, rulership. Um, I think... I think that's, um, thank you for all the- nice your comment about, uh, comments yeah. that um, you showed statistics about uh, um, studies of Alf Leila in the Arab world. Were those uh, statistics for, from the Arab world or was, it, was that worldwide? No, 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 this is, let me go back. Uh, I don't know if you can see the screen stuff. It's from the Arab world and uh, it's, uh, it doesn't go into details. The study um, is by Brahim uh, Akel from 2016. Um, it's one of the books edited by Sharaibi. It goes uh, into the numbers of uh, books, chapters, and uh, PhD and master's work on Al-Flayla from the Arab world. And you see it started, the first one started in 1941. And uh, it keeps growing in the last 15 years, or, or from 2000 and 2000 to 2015, it's almost 300 works. So it keeps growing, which is If I could just add for this questioner, so um, even though it's now a little bit out of date, maybe, maybe 10 years, there's something called the Encyclopedia of the Arabian Nights. Uh, which I believe is now available freely online. And uh, that is uh, a huge repository of information about all the work that's been undertaken, at least until the point that it came out. And it'll include answers to your question about how many works have been, uh, how many languages have been translated into and so on. I'm sure yeah. you, know, you know this work well. Yes, yes, yes. It's an incredible resource for, for anything related to Al-Flayla. But yeah, new studies keep coming out, which is uh, quite exciting. So. Okay, um, please share your email. Yes, I will share my email in the chat. Uh, can I do that in the chat? There's a question that's coming from Mohammed Rustam. Um, it says, I noticed that there were resonances of the text in Ibn Tufail's Hayy ibn Yaqzan. That leads me to wonder how pervasive the influence of this work has been. On the Arabic Islamic tradition, in terms of a variety of genres, we are told often that the influence is extensive. Are there any other specific examples of its adaptation in the tradition? Uh, I think, uh, thank you, Mohammed, for the question. I think part of my interest in writing about uh, this concern for, for justice in Al Flayla is to bring Al Flayla into more. Um, uh, circles of discussion about influence in, in other works, um, medieval works. And that's why I suggest we do not call it a work of advice literature. It's a work of literature that's trying to uh, rework uh, these concepts. So um, my hope is that it would be included more in discussions of justice and communal good, which so far hasn't been done. Uh, there are many studies about Al-Flayla, in other uh, areas, but not when it comes to, uh, particularly to, to conception of justice. Um, There's a question from Nora. Hello, nice to hear from you. Uh, just wanted to ask about the role of women in justice in these stories, but specifically in relation to Shahrazad. Uh, 
Um, I'm gonna, I thank you for this because I, there is one slide that I didn't share that I would like to share, and it's this one. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is one reading of many, and uh, Alflela will continue to inspire new readings. And I think one way of looking at the frame tale uh, can be in incorporating the experience of Shahrazad, uh, who's a great storyteller, a great advisor to the king, with the broader theme of women and, and power in um, medieval culture. And I'm, I just happen to have the book here. This slide is uh, from um, a forthcoming book from the Arab uh, Literature for Youth series that is sponsored by the Library of Arabic Literature. And this one is uh, an adaptation of uh, a book that came out that actually Dr. Turawa uh, and, and Julia Bray edited and, and uh, translated. And so I think uh, we can write more and think more of uh, Shahrazad in the frame tale in that realm of women being close to power and um, historically, not just in literature. I hope that answers your question. Uh, two uh, two uh, audience members are inquiring about the origin of the frame tale and the story within the story uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a device. The origin? Uh, I think, uh, I don't know that we know of one origin, but I think it's been shown, and just last week there was a wonderful conference on framing uh, at the, um, in Berlin, uh, hosted by the Kalilo Adimna project. Again, another work that uh, deals with the frames and framing. And what we realize is that there is, it's hard to point to a culture that did not experiment with this uh, form of stories within, uh, within stories. But in the Arabic tradition, actually, it has more specific uh, engagement. I mean, if you think of all forms of knowledge production, like if you think of hadith compilations and the isnad, isnad is a form of, you know, keeping uh, one hadith or one report through multiple uh, contexts and it carries the report over time and over different uh, geographical uh, areas. So it does that what the, um, if you think of any poetry compilation, the khabar, the, the metan and the isnad, this relationship is also comparable to the idea of a story within a story. But at a literary form, this dynamic of embedding and framing is pretty ubiquitous in all cultures. Uh, there's a question for another one of your fellow editors. Uh, Lara asks, uh, after uh, thanking you for the talk, she asks, one, what do you make of the fact that the sin committed in the story, that is the killing, killing the Afrit's son with a date pit, was in the first place an accident? Is it yeah. exactly commensurate with Shahrazad's position? Yes. Uh, thank you, Lara, and thank you for being here and attending for the question. I think this story is playful in that there is uh, hermeneutical humor to a certain extent. First, the act is uh, random. It's an accident. If what happened in the frontal, then there is uh, a much more uh, deliberate act. The act, uh, the merchant doesn't see, like there's seeing, witnessing is alienated. So he's surprised. But also we see uh, while in the frame tale, Shahzaman uh, witnesses his wife first uh, 
cheating on him. And then he witnesses his wife, his brother's wife cheating and a third time. So witnessing is prominent in the friend tale. But also the merchant uh, has the opportunity to speak. He asks, what did I do? And is given an answer. And here I actually, in a more uh, extended version of this talk, I show how the stages of what happens with the merchant kind of uh, loosely um, kind of parody the legal process, right? So, and, and the three shifts kind of uh, function as a witness uh, expert. Uh, that, uh, so it kind of directly contrasts with the idea that Shahrayar uh, did that on his own uh, without consultation and he misread the whole situation and didn't give a chance to his victims to speak. Uh, Lara has another question, but I'm just going to mention, uh, since a couple of people asked uh, about the possibility of um, hearing or seeing a version of this, some people had some issues with sound at the beginning. I think we resolved those problems, but it may have been on their end as well, because people were representing both that they could hear and that they couldn't. Um, so uh, one thing to note is that this will, a recording of this talk will be available um, mm -hmm. uh, through the Library of Arabic Literature website, but also through the NYU Abu Dhabi website, and I believe it goes onto YouTube. Um, Inas is also publishing this talk as an article in the Journal of Arabic and Islamic Studies, which is a freely accessible online journal. So you'll be able to see a more elaborate version of that. Um, I'm not certain there'll be a transcript available, which is what some people have asked for, but you can go to the YouTube video. Um, Lara's second question, uh, I'll read it verbatim. I am convinced by your argument for reading Alf Leila as a work of adab. How then do we make sense of Ibn Nadim's dismissal of the work as mere entertainment? Uh, I think the work changed, uh, like as I show in the fragment, there's no frame tale in the fragment. It starts Tina uh, Zad asking her sister to speak. So it changed and the version we have now is certainly, the version reconstructed by, uh, by Mahdi is certainly not what Ibn Nadim had access to. And in the end, Ibn Nadim's Ferris is almost we treat it like a uh, uh, biblical source, but it is very important, but it's also uh, an opinion, uh, self-interested with the specific context of the time. So, um, but I think the version we're talking about now is much more elaborate and complex. Uh, and I think he would change his mind. If I could just add, since I'm a Bible scholar, by which I mean an Ibn Nadim scholar, <laughs> Inspiring one. You know, he also mentions in that same passage uh, that Jashayari was collecting stories. Yes. Uh, and that it was supposed to be a thousand nights, but it was only a certain number and, and it's missing. And he doesn't make any disparaging comment about that, uh, that act of collecting stories. So, um, yeah, it's hard to know uh, certainly what, what Ibn Nadim saw he didn't like, but he didn't have a, an animus against the concept of collecting stories. And, and that's introduced, as, as we know, by a discussion of Alexander and his courtiers and so on. So, uh, but let me not speak. I, there are other people with article or with questions, excuse me, not articles. Um, Morris asks, uh, scholars, scholars like Matahadeh have described a yearning for kinship that was distant from society and impartial to the interests of particular groups. Yet interestingly, the fantasy of the knights bring the rulers, brings the rulers closer in a way to the people especially stories in which Harun al-Rashid walks on the streets of, of Baghdad. What do you think this says about the audience for these tales? And let me just add that there's another question uh, from another uh, an anonymous attendee that says some tales include real life people like Harun al-Rashid. I'm curious if the tales with real life people are true or merely fantasy. So these questions are two sides of uh, 
more than two-sided coin. Uh, I think the stories of Harun al-Rashid walking into the house of the three uh, ladies is, is, belongs to fiction, not to, to reality. But, but yeah, it says a lot about the audience uh, of Al-Flayla, and I think it says a lot about why it survives in, in such great uh, appeal over the years. Because in a way, first it's mocking the ruler and kind of taking away and alienating the idea that the ruler is a deputy of the prophet of, or of God. We're now... In Mamluk times, perhaps it's uh, it's also explains a little bit, but but so it marks the ruler and it gives uh, more power to the moment of encounter uh, of interpretation, and so in a way it keeps uh, meaning open, it keeps potential open, and that's why I said it's promissory. There is a sense of. Uh, uh, continuity in it that gives more uh, power to readers and I think that's the distinction also I make with advice literature uh, which is more geared to stabilizing meaning and stabilizing power and order uh, Al-Flayla is more playful about that and yes the ruler actually uh, if you want to read it uh, roughly like Al-Flayla is about bringing Shahrayar to his context and making him aware of the norms around him and the expectations uh, around him. Uh, playfulness leads into the next question. Uh, one uh, audience member asks about the amount of sexual content, which seems to be quite considerable. Uh, what was the reason behind that presence? Um, in, in the frame for example, it. Um, it brings, uh, it connects actually the, the frontal crisis is all um, kind of structured around sex scenes. And uh, it continues in the stories of the sheikhs. There's a lot of sex also. So it becomes like a kind of a thread that connects everything uh, in a very, again, playful and engaging way. And this is uh, a, this is a tale like I will speak about the sequences I spoke about today, where a king is killed, where a sage is beheaded, where you know the the what is expected and what's allowed is pretty loose. So sex comes with that uh, possibility, with that potential. You know, it makes clear that we're here in a realm that's experimental, that's fun, that doesn't abide by by the rules, and it works. Uh, but it's not just this mere uh, level of, of theme and scenes. It actually works into the hermeneutical humor that's in the text. So there are references, there are things that Al-Flayla is expecting the readers to understand and know, and that's where the humor is, uh, not in the scenes themselves. Uh, one, uh, one audience member asks if there's a way... Uh, or if, if the story of Sinbad has been traced to the ancient Egyptian story of the shipwrecked sailor. Okay, so the story of Sinbad has a very, very um, entangled uh, uh, history. And um, it's one of the stories that, although we have Hadith uh, Sinbad in in somewhere around uh, the text of uh, the textual history of Al-Layla Layla, but it's when uh, that, that has a very uh, complex uh, genetic history. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to refer you to more sources to read on that. 
what is your opinion on the Western adaptation of the Thousand and One Night Stories and its themes of Orientalism? Um, the adaptation has not stopped. It's ongoing. And uh, now actually with more, I, I'm, I'm very excited about the new translation that's coming out. Uh, with more scholars and readers and translators from um, like in terms of scholarship, but also from within the tradition, bringing and highlighting uh, uh, more aspects of Al-Flayla, I think the engagement would be different. But we're talking about a time when there was very limited access to, to what the work means, very limited access to the uh, history of the manuscript. Uh, so it took on another life. And that's why I said it's more um, immediate uh, when you talk about Al-Flayla to expect it to be modern and Western. And we're actually putting an effort into bringing into it its, um, you know, its many layers from Arabo-Islamic culture. So it's an ongoing process, but I think uh, the more work uh, that's coming out from the scholarship and from translation, um, we will see different adaptations. Uh, uh, well, there's more and more questions, so um, it's a good thing we have time. As long as you are, you want to take a sip of water or something in us before I, I, I have a drink. Okay, good. Um, okay, is there any suggestion in the analysis of the frame story of the day that marrying a serial murderer of women isn't a happy ending for Shahrazad, given especially that it is begetting him an heir that finally saves her life? We don't know that that ending is actually. The, the, the ending of the nights, you know, this is what's exciting about this work because with every detail we can uh, imagine uh, a copyist or an author or a scholar, as Shiraida suggests, and Mahdi, uh, adding something to it, right? I would suggest Shahrazad could have stopped with the end of the second sequence. But also an important point to make here is that, uh, and I see it in the criticism of, of the nights a lot, and I'm thinking of uh, Shahrayar as a tyrant. I think the point to, to see here is that first we had a stable kingdom. We had some form of legitimacy that's stable. And I show indications from the tale uh, about that. So we are to understand Shahrayar was a good ruler. He was performing, you know, according to expectation and keeping his uh, kingdom stable and safe. And then he uh, lost sight of justice and became murderous. And then he was restored to being a good king. So what's important here to know that we're not saying Shahriyar is good or bad. We're talking about performance. And this is an important point in Al-Flayla. Rulership is a performance. And that's why it believes in reform. Uh, and instead of, you know, taking the king out and, and replacing him. Um, so, and what Shahrazad does brings to the readers, I believe, uh, there is an encounter between Shahrazad and her father in the frame tale, the vizier, in which she tells him, I want to marry the king. And he, he says, why would you do that? It's crazy, you're gonna end up killed. And she says, uh, I have to do it. And I think to the, Listeners, she's. This is quite admirable because there is the expectation that first intention matters and niya matters 
uh, even if you don't succeed. Second, there is a concept in, in uh, Islamic cultures called Fard uh, al-Kifaya, in which when there is a crisis, when there is a need, one person can shoulder what the collective should be doing. So in a way, having the extreme Shahrayar uh, doing this extreme excessive, uh, it's actually not punishment, it's just a, a murder spree of innocent women is to contrast these elements. And that's how we should read it. Since you mentioned listeners, I'm going to cut to Nasser Rabat's question. Uh, so I'm <laughs> back. I knew you'd be happy to hear that. By the way, one person wanted when you're coming back to Beirut. So um, many Arabic epics like Abizaid, Antara, and Zahir Baybar has reached a wide audience through oral presentations by Hakawati. Do we know at all if Alf Leila was presented orally? For sure, this is uh, the predominant theory about Alf Leila, that it had a wide oral uh, transmission. But I would say that what I see in my analysis Actually, I agree more with uh, Mahdi and Sharaibi and Malet in that there is an intention and these, uh, there is something happening uh, through the copyists, the many authors, uh, and the written transmission, because these are elaborate uh, hermeneutical uh, decisions that are being made. And, and actually, from the smallest details, you can tell that this is not... Um, an on-the-spot addition to the story, and it's someone thinking of how to, uh, like in the story of King Yunan, how the book is called Khas al-Khawas, and how he's poisoned. There's something about kings who cannot read, or, or Kitab al-Masmub, the poisoned book, and, and mocking uh, rulers who do not know, do not have enough knowledge. So there is very elaborate, uh, I think, effort put into these tales and how they're compiled, that are more inclined to, uh, yes, orally and through storytelling in different settings, that's accepted. Uh, but I would uh, stress more that we think of uh, the writers, the authors and copyists and, and the effort they put into it. So let me, let me press you on this, and James Montgomery is as well. He says, who is the audience these features of the work you've outlined aimed at? So how does that how does that relate to the answer about the Hakawati? So if it's the Hakawati in, in uh, Hakawati contexts, then the audience is presumably one kind of audience. If it's advice literature, uh, then presumably the audience is a, is a slightly different, uh, I, I don't want to say courtly necessarily, but a slightly different audience. So what, what, do you, what, do you, what are your views on, the, on the, in, the intended audience for this kind of... Yeah, so, uh, so in the link I made with Adam. I want to answer that through that link because, you know, when we have in one in one uh, argument made by an adib, seven or eight uh, reports, all speaking of the same issue, different authorities, different level of of report. One is lighter, one is kind of uh, with a story that's kind of funny. One is more serious. I think. It's the same with the stories that are embedded within these sequences. Meaning, as a narrator, you're doing, you're selecting based on your audience. Because uh, in the second sequence with the fisherman and the Afrid, it's believed that three or five of the stories are added later. And what I think in these stories, we can imagine the narrator, if it's a more sophisticated audience, then you select 
the stories that are uh, more elaborate. If it's an audience you want to keep interested and, and then you go and skip into the lighter and shorter stories. And you would see that in the sequences that are silent, I call them silent stories. For example, Afrit says, please don't do to me what Atika did to her sister. And then the fisherman would ask, what did she do? And he would say, I'm in such an uncomfortable position right now in this bottle, I cannot narrate it. But you can see that for a narrator, maybe a storyteller, this is an opportunity to come up with something in response to, to the immediate audience. But, but again, I would go back to my first point that we need to uh, think more of a more um, well-read audience and even bookish uh, readers, people who are reading it and not just listening to it because of all these elaborate um, hermeneutical plays in the, in the text. A much more granular question now, um, or, or, or focused. Uh, <coughs> the story circa the 438th night, wherein a woman was challenged by all the greatest Islamic scholars and defeated them, as well as scholars in other areas. When a scholar lost, he had to give up all his clothes. It has quite a bit of humor as well as a religious analysis. What is your opinion of that? Uh, I, I think... Uh, this is something I think what, what is charming about studying, um, uh, for example, justice and, and, and sex scenes in one breath is that, uh, again, this is a text that wants to be read and it's uh, playful and at the same time very complex. And through uh, these smaller details of the narrative, we are allowed and we should, I think, reconstruct serious questions that are being presented. So there is so much that can be read in that scene, right? Uh, especially uh, thinking of what's expected, what the image of the scholar is, what the image of a debate uh, outcome uh, is expected to be. So by reversing all that and stripping it naked, literally, uh, then you're kind of uh, making an argument, but in a playful, you know, uh, Literally, One of the interesting uh, stories for that kind of thinking as well is the story of the hunchback, right? Mm -hmm. Where justice on display, you've got uh, um, appearances uh, deceive people, you've got uh, characters from different communities. I mean, there seems to be an attempt to bring in all kinds of uh, aspects of the way that one um, might operate a justice system. Um, either successfully or unsuccessfully, which uh, dovetails with uh, a question here about, in fact, wh where people are from. Someone asks, is the original, in the original story, uh, Aladdin uh, was, writ was written as a boy from a city in China, uh, but named uh, Aladdin Aladdin. And from the point of view of, re of the reader, the, Im the imagery feels like it is set in Arabia or Persia. Is this because the author wanted to add mystery and intrigue, or is there some other reason for this setting? Mm, uh, I wonder if here we have uh, Johannes, if he's uh, attending this talk. Um, uh, I, I cannot, I cannot tell. Like uh, I would think both, uh, and I, uh, and I think uh, for um, uh, not just in Al Layla Layla, but in medieval uh, Arab uh, uh, works, we 
often see references to the, the king of China, a king in India, uh, the Sasanian king, and then they name them Alexander the Great. So you have geographies of, of cultural references, but they change. They're not the same. And they move in certain ways in every tale, like they do in other forms of knowledge production. And you move them to, uh, in a way, this cultural geography confirms a specific argument you're making in these texts. So for the stories in Aflaila Leila, also these geographies move to make a point. And I think, for example, the story of Shahrayar, Malik Sinu Sinu in Al-Hind and Samarkand, it's taken it out of the immediate Islamic context. It's telling us, this is not a caliph, relax. <laughs> it's going to do something horrible and there will be kings that die, but relax, this is, the, you know. And also, of course, the intrigue and the curiosity. But we have to know that this is not unusual. Uh, readers of medieval texts are familiar with all these references to Greek, Sasanian, Indian, uh, even Chinese uh, cultures uh, in a variety of contexts. Um, uh, one, uh, one person has a follow-up question on the preceding one about audience. Uh, is it similarly possible to theorize about the gender of the audience, where the stories listened to by men and women alike? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I'll have to think about that, but it's really a brilliant question. Uh, I would think it, it would be um, hugely amusing for, for both and uh, for different reasons. Uh, but, but also uh, everyone is being made fun of in these stories. So you have women turned, uh, two women turned into uh, a she-mule and a gazelle. And then you have two men turned into two black dogs. So the humor, there's enough to go around. But this is an interesting uh, question to think about. Thank you. One of the things that I noticed, you know, when you read Hadawi's introduction, he says he heard these stories from his grandmother. And there are any number of uh, people, uh, of authors, who either worked the night, worked the nights, or translated the nights, who mentioned that they heard it from their mother or their grandmother. And so whatever the original audience might have been, it is the case in its later iterations that people, some people anyway, uh, men, are receiving the stories from women. And of course, that, that um, uh, immediately reminds one that one of the things we forget is that the, if you accept the frame, the frame, the story is always being told by a woman. But whatever the case is, Shahrazad's voice is the voice that's supposed to be uh, telling all of this. So, so. Uh, you're not going to believe this, but you have a question from Philip Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> I'll read the whole thing. Thank you, Inas. Wonderful lecture. Would you agree that the earlier redactors of the Knights understood your scheme of reading, but didn't later redactors lose sight of this when they added a whole bundle of diverse materials? And then in parentheses, how much of the Knights collection works with your reading approximately? Uh, what's the last part? Oh. He's, I think he's trying to work out whether there's a whether we're talking about the same nights, right? So you've got a scheme at work, but then with all the accretion and the bundling and things that come later, would would your reading still hold? Mm. I think, I, yeah, I made a specific decision to uh, talk about these uh, three sets of stories because when I uh, actually, I thought that everyone assumed that these three are one set. I remember mentioning that to Aliyat Kola, who was teaching a class on Atlayla, and he said, 
You should write that because no one says that. And I was like, but it's so clear that they have a complete conversation. And that doesn't mean that these uh, themes do not recur in later tales and that they are not gesturing back to this debate. Uh, and I think it's near impossible to contain the many uh, chains within the nights in, in any theme or on a number of themes. It's very diverse. But I think uh, this set alone made sense to not one person, but several generations of copyists that they kept it intact, maybe added, like I said, the second uh, sequence of the Fisherman and Afrid, we believe there are uh, many stories added to it. They don't change the tone or the message. Uh, some of them do not add anything, actually. They're just, you know, there. Uh, but they did make uh, one debate. That's why I believe it made sense to someone, uh, not just one person, because it was kept there and then added other things. Um, and I feel like, why not, uh, like an add-up work, again, you have the general theme, uh, but then within it, you don't have one argument or two. Uh, you have just everything that the author felt could fall under this theme and inform it uh, in a way. And uh, it, it brings me back to the idea of readers, actual readers of the text, in that there is always the option of choosing. And I see that clear in, uh, clearly in Alfreyla Manela. You're selecting from these sets of stories, uh, like what you said, Tlawa, uh, about people hearing from their grandmothers. You're selecting what you want to say to someone else, or you want to narrate, or what context you want to use. And uh, this variety is there for you to choose. Uh, but yeah, I, I see that conversation in the first three stories alone. Uh, one person asks, um, for a person just starting out uh, reading Alf Leila, can you suggest resources that give a sort of overview of themes and things to as we read on? Um, do you have any specific, are there any specific works of scholarship or websites or anything that you would recommend to someone? I don't know if this person... Judging from the name, the person probably reads Arabic. So, uh, but yeah. Arabic what, or Arabic resources. What's the first part of the question? I'm sorry. Someone who's starting out reading Alf Leila. Ah, yes. Resources uh, are available uh, to the person. In Arabic and to English? The, to learn more about the themes. Ah, uh, the themes. Uh, I think the encyclopedia is, is a great source. Uh, I would say for, uh, to look, at, um, to, to wait for Yasmin's translation, by the way, she'll be the first woman translating the nights, so uh, that would be uh, wonderful. And uh, in terms of books, I think the person I mentioned, Brahim Akhil, uh, he writes in Arabic too, and gives an overview of, uh, of um, the nights. Um, but yeah, I cannot think of one word. Please do leave your email and I will uh, send you a bibliography of suggestions. Yeah. I am just putting the names of the editors of the encyclopedia. Thank you. Uh, in the chat. Uh, what is it called? The Encyclopedia of the Arabian Nights? Something like that. And you mentioned Ibrahim. Uh, is it Ibrahim Akal? Mm hmm. Is he also the, yes, that's right. He, I think he just, there is a book that came out this year, um, edited by him, yeah. 
Yes, and Yasmin Seal, whose uh, translation of Aladdin has already appeared with Norton, and who's working on um, the translation of The Whole Nights, and who also, with whom you opened, right, with that opening slide of the work that she's yes, doing. Yes, yes, I, I asked her to uh, start with her work because uh, she thinks of the night in a very innovative and artistic way, and I thought uh, it's pretty brilliant that uh, as a woman should be translating it. Uh, I'm sure it will be a great. She, um, yeah, we, I, I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at Yale. It was a luminous talk and translation, the parts of which she read. Uh, here's an, here's a, a good question. I, well, they're all good questions, of course, but this is a fun one. Uh, the question is for both Ms. Khansa and Mr. Turawa. Which tales are you most fond of and why? <laughs> refer and defer to you. Hamal wal Thalad Banat. Hamal wal Thalad Banat, okay. So, yes. Porter and the Three Ladies, a very famous story. It's <laughs> most... One of the ones that's most studied. Yeah, uh, so it's it's, a, it's very long. It's uh, beautiful and it has a lot on Baghdad and uh, uh, it, it's very witty and uh, very entertaining. Uh, I love all the uh, word games they play and uh, yeah, it has everything basically. <laughs> and then you have Harun al-Rashid and um, yeah, yeah. The, the scope of imagination is just astounding in this time. What's yours, Tarawa? Well, since I was asked, I feel like I should answer. So mine is actually the frame tale. Uh, you know, one of the things I say to my students, uh, this goes a little bit against what you were saying about whether the ending is close. <laughs> to me, what makes Arabian Nights, Arabian Nights is the presence of the frame at the beginning of the end. Uh, and, you know, there are very few uh, iterations that don't have Shahrazad. She seems to be the glue. Uh, and uh, even though I agree with everything you said, um, I do think that there's a way in which it's not the Arabian Nights. It's not Alf Layla if, there are, if there's no Shahrazad. And that requires the frame to open and to conclude in whatever way it concludes. It, I'm not attached to the, that conclusion. And I, I do think he's a serial murderer and rapist. But, but there is a way in which, um, in which that provides a certain, um, I, I'm not going to call it coherence, but, but, but frame, literally frame to the whole thing. Uh, so that's in that, it, my favorite in that sense, not, not favorite in, uh, in terms of the story itself. Um, yeah, the, the Port of the Three Ladies and, and many others for that matter. Uh, I just want to say that um, one person has asked for, uh, whether his question was visible earlier, I, I guess we both missed it, but it's about someone who's writing a novel and wants uh, advice on resources. So I think that will be captured by our answers about um, things like the encyclopedia and, and others as a good place to go. It is one of the most heavily adapted works. And I can uh, recommend the Wikipedia entry, actually, if you want to look at the ways in which it's been adapted, because the, whoever's been working on that entry has been creating a kind of inventory and repertory of all the works in world literature that have turned to, uh, to the knights. Um, Philip Kennedy suggests Robert Irwin's Companion as well, which is also a very good suggestion, yes. I mean, there, there are, there's a lot. Um, now, Johannes has answered so he, because you, you, you took him by name, <laughs> yeah. um, as a comment to the previous question, as Inas has referred to me, Aladdin is a late addition to the corpus. Joseph Sadan has found some parallels to a tale from Ottoman times. According to Jean-Paul Sermin, the later added orphan stories to which Aladdin belongs portray a very different type of story in which Todorov's sort of mechanical view on characters as narrative functions, which is why they die so often, uh, doesn't seem as central as is the case in older tales. Aladdin seems a more personalized, emotionally complex tale, reminiscent of a coming-of-age fairy tale. It doesn't seem to have much to do with the negotiation of justice, as in the older bundle of stories, the fisherman, the trader, the hunchback, the porter, and the ladies mm -hmm. that Inas has presented so concisely. And speaking uh, of 
That's a concise presentation. After you respond to this, I'm going to bring this to a close as we're approaching 11 o'clock. Uh, I wanted to mention that uh, Johannes and, uh, is doing an edition for uh, Lal uh, about Hanna Diab, uh, the person who's believed to be one source uh, of, of uh, the tales. So you can, you can add that to your list of sources to look forward to uh, this forthcoming. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Surawa. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, attending this and for listening. Lal, it's a pleasure to be part of this family, and I look forward to a very productive tenure. Uh, it's a joy to share my passion and to, to talk about my work. So thank you so much, everyone. This has been uh, very special. And I'd like to just uh, add to those thanks. Thank you, Inas, uh, for a wonderful presentation. I'm sorry for those of you who had uh, difficulties with sound. Uh, I hope that was able to be resolved. Uh, you'll be able to go to the YouTube um, recording of this, and I believe we'll post it on our, a link to it on our Library of Arabic Literature website as well. I just want to acknowledge, again, uh, NYU Abu Dhabi, the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, uh, in the, for the purposes of this lecture, notably um, Nahid Ahmed, who helped put this all together, and her team, of technical and other uh, administrative staff. Um, the Library of Arabic Literature would not be anywhere without the support of uh, NYU Abu Dhabi and the, um, the generosity and uh, vision of Tamkeen. Uh, and so we, on behalf of Philip Kennedy and the entire library and its editors and uh, the entire you know, production team and, and others, uh, we, we would also like to express publicly our thanks um, to the institutions for the support and uh, we look forward to continuing to produce interesting books and bringing you exciting lectures there's an instagram page there's a facebook page we're on twitter there's a website um, a lot of our materials are free i mentioned that the arabic uh, texts that are edited for the library are all freely available for download and uh, and our books are cheap uh, affordable uh, again thanks to the grant so um, thank you for supporting our speakers and our publications, and I look forward to seeing everyone uh, one year uh, from today. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.